Let's uh, take some time now to go to our God in prayer. Would you please pray with me? Well, Father in heaven, we do thank you for this word, uh, this word that uh, I think challenges us, uh, but also provides comfort. And Father, may, may we uh, be open to hearing it by your spirit. Lord, we, we ask that the spirit who inspired these words to be written would, would speak them into our hearts, that he would illuminate our hearts and help us to see Jesus. Lord, we love you, and it's in Jesus' great name we pray. Amen. Well, I am excited to, uh, to dig into a topic with you all that has no controversy, about which people have no strong feelings. You know, it's just an easy, simple topic. I don't understand why you guys laughed at that. Uh, now, in our, in our text this morning, Jesus is asked a direct question about taxes, everyone's favorite topic. But his answer gives us the beginnings of a framework, not only for how Christians can and should interact with the IRS, which is timely given that April 15th is upon us, but it gives us the beginnings of a framework for how Christians can relate to the state as a whole. Now, according to just about every metric available, our society has never been more divided by politics. Uh, We're less likely than ever before to have friends who vote differently from us. We are more likely to choose where we live based on how our neighbors vote. Uh, There was a survey in the 1950s in which American parents were asked how they would feel if their child were to to marry someone from from the opposite party. And at that time, in the 1950s, less than 10% of respondents said that they would have a problem with that. In 2016, again, a year with no controversy, that number sextupled to over 60%. The majority of people can't fathom their child marrying someone who would vote differently from them. And this isn't surprising given the, given the reports that party-based antipathy more than doubled among both Democrats and Republicans from 1994 to 2014. According to one cultural commentator, politics is well on its way to becoming the most entrenched and impermeable social divide in America, surpassing religion, income bracket, and race. More than that, though, it's becoming a sort of replacement religion with party labels doing more than just summarizing people's views on various policies, but according to a recent article, expressing an identity. Now, while the degree to which we are doing this here and now is is somewhat new, right? the degree to which we're doing it, the reality, though, is that humans have been doing this with politics, finding their identity in it, giving it an allegiance that, that belongs to God alone from the very beginning. And that's what we see happening here in this text. So before getting into the nitty-gritty about how Christians can and should relate to the state, rendering to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar and to God, that which alone belongs to him, uh, and trying to not get those things twisted, I want to take a few minutes to, to set the scene here. So our passage begins in verse 13 with two groups of people coming to Jesus. In verse 13, we read, And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Here again, we see two groups of people coming to Jesus, and these two groups of people were adamantly opposed to each other. The Pharisees on the one hand and the Herodians on the other. 
The Pharisees were a group of people who tended to be nationalistic in their orientation. They wanted to reestablish the nation of Israel to its former glory. They wanted a Jewish nation faithful to the letter of the Mosaic law. They wanted to rid themselves of what they viewed to be foreign oppressors, the Romans and their empire. The Herodians, on the other hand, were in favor of Roman rule. They were clients of Herod, who was a Roman vassal. They benefited from their connection to Rome, and they wanted Rome to stay. Needless to say, the Pharisees and the Herodians did not get along. They didn't like each other. In fact, they hated each other. In the eyes of the Herodians, the Pharisees were a backwater group, refusing to make progress, accept reality. The Herodians didn't see a future without Rome, and so they wanted the Pharisees to get with the picture. But in the eyes of the Pharisees, the Herodians were spineless sellouts, you know, people without morals or character, accommodating unclean Gentiles for their own benefit. But there was one thing, despite all their differences, that they could agree on, that Jesus was a problem. See, Jesus wasn't concerned, as the Pharisees were, with restoring national Israel to its former glory. He wasn't going to come in on his horse and drive out the foreigners. But Jesus also wasn't particularly concerned with making Rome happy. He advocated for a kingdom that was different, a kingdom that was not of this world, and that was likely going to make Rome nervous. Jesus was a threat to the political ideologies of both groups. And so these opposite parties could come together in their mutual suspicion and hatred of Jesus. And why did they respond to Jesus in this way? Because politics had become an idol for both of them. See, every political system, every government is a human system. And unless a human system is fully centered on God, which no human system is, Jesus will have things to affirm and critique about it. And when politics becomes a means of justification, of identity formation, when it becomes an idol, you can't hear constructive criticism. Critiques become threats. In preparation for this Sunday, I was reading a book that dealt with the ways in which Christians ought to relate to the state. And uh, the author, who's a pastor, he talked about a sermon that he preached when he was ministering in New York. Uh, His sermon touched on the topic of poverty, and he said that the very next day, so the Monday after he preached, he received two two emails in in short succession. The first email accused him, among other things, of being a right-wing extremist. The very next email, in response to the same sermon, called him a left-wing Marxist. There is no such thing as a perfect political ideology. Jesus is going to have something to critique about every human system, and so we need to be careful that we're not so sold out to our particular political views that we miss Jesus. And that's what we see happening in this text. Jesus posed a threat to both the Herodians and the Pharisees. So they come after him, and they, quote, try to trap him in his talk. But they do so in a peculiar way. So in verse 14, we read, And they came to him and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. 
See, they're on his side, right? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? So the Pharisees and Herodians come to Jesus with a very loaded question with the intention, we're told explicitly, of trying to trip him up, to trap him in his talk. But they, they couch that loaded question with this vomit-inducing fake flattery. Katie and I, in, in the last month or so, have, have done a lot of work on our house, and, and we, we deal with, uh, we're, we've been dealing with a lot of vendors and we, we've received this type of fake flattery a lot in the last month, where it's stuff where we're waiting for a quote, and we just kind of want the number, just how much is it going to cost. And before someone who's going to be more expensive tells you that, that they're going to be more expensive, they, they say something like, we know you're smart enough to not choose the cheapest vendor. <laughs> to which I often want to say, no, I'm actually quite dumb. If you're the cheapest vendor, I will choose you. <laughs> anyway. This is more or less what the the Herodians and Pharisees are trying to do here with Jesus. Something similar is going on. Jesus' opponents come to him with fake flattery, hoping to disarm him. Now, their words contained a modicum modicum of truth. Jesus was not influenced by the opinions of others. And he did teach the way of God. But he wouldn't unwittingly give a self condemning answer like what they were hoping for. He walks into their trap but with his eyes wide open. So what was the trap? Well, he asked a specific, well, Jesus was asked a specific and practical question. So evasion or refusal to answer would have been disastrous. And if he answered with a simple yes, he would have been branded a traitor and collaborationist, and many would have abandoned him in in disgust. If he answered no, on the other hand, The Romans would see him as an insurrectionist. Rome actually, interestingly, tolerated a degree of religious freedom. And so Jesus could preach something that was contrary to the Roman understanding of religion, that they did not allow a whole lot of diversity when it came to the matter of paying taxes. So if Jesus said no, he would have been a dead man. So his antagonists thought they had him, and they eagerly awaited his response. The Pharisees hoping for a yes that they could herald to the nation, and the Herodians equally eager for a no that they could bring to the Romans. So what does Jesus actually say? Well, in verses 15 to 17, we read, But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius, and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Jesus diffused their loaded question first by calling it what it was. It was a trap. So he walks into it with his eyes wide open. But he doesn't avoid the question altogether. He answers it, but but he first asks for a prop, which is very interesting, and and one is quickly produced. And the reason that that is a really interesting thing is that the denarius was was somewhat scandalous at the time. See, faithful Jews wouldn't typically have one on hand. It was scandalous because, as we'll see in just a few minutes here, it had a picture and inscription of Caesar. Caesar. In Jewish regions such as this one, it it was common that they would have their own currency made of copper coins circulating with no image or inscription of it. 
Herod even, right? the Herod who was friendly with Rome, he circulated a currency with no image or inscription on it. Right? Faithful Jews, again, in a casual setting like this, wouldn't want to have such a thing on their person. So Jesus, in asking for one and receiving one right away, is able to, in a roundabout way, point out their hypocrisy. You guys don't really have a right to challenge my nationalistic zeal right now. So it's interesting. All right, but what is this controversial coin? What is a denarius? Well, it was a small silver coin, which on one side bore the image of Caesar with the inscription, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. And on the reverse side, it had the, inscri- the inscription, chief priest. One denarius was the amount that was paid annually to the Roman treasury by all adult men and women simply for the privilege of existing. Well, Jesus takes the coin and he holds it up and he asks the question, whose likeness and inscription is this? To which they responded, perhaps dejectedly, Caesar's. So then Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. What's going on here? Well, Jesus has caught them in a dilemma. See, the logic of give to Caesar what Caesar's couldn't be disputed. Why? Well, the reason is that ancient coins were actually understood to be the property of the person whose inscription and image were on them. The coin bearing the emperor's image should be given to the emperor. That's all that he's entitled to. It's his. Give it back. It's fine. The flip side of this, though, is Jesus' admonition to give to God that which belongs to him. These little coins bear Caesar's image. You can give them back to him. But what bears the image of God? We do. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 tells us, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Caesar can have his coins, but God gets us. He gets our hope, our trust, our faith, our ultimate allegiance. So let's take a little time now to examine what it means to do what Jesus says in this matter. What does it mean to render to Caesar what Caesar's and to God the things that are God's? We'll begin with rendering to Caesar. Again, we're just going to read the beginning portion of verse 17. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. What is Jesus saying with this statement? Well, the simplest thing that he's saying is that we should pay taxes. Sorry, guys. It's, it's there. But implicit in this teaching and elaborated elsewhere in the New Testament is the basic premise that the state is valid. To those living in Rome, whose government was not friendly to Christians, the Apostle Paul in Romans 13 encouraged submission to the governing authorities, reminding them that all authority is ultimately established by God. Peter, likewise, tells believers that part of their service to the common good is to fear God and honor the emperor. The emperor that he was referring to at that time was Nero, who was no friend to Christians. The Bible also highlights God-fearing men and women who serve in public office. So if you find yourself working in public office, the Bible affirms that that is good and valid work. 
work that should be done well for the good of your neighbor and the glory of God. I think one of the most helpful passages in the Bible that helps us to understand how we relate to the governing authorities is Jeremiah 29.7, where we read, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. This was God's encouragement to the Israelites exiled in Babylon. They're going to a pagan nation, one that was hostile to God and his ways. And what were they to do? They were to work for its common good. They weren't to sit back and condemn it, abstain from it altogether. They weren't to try to overtake it. No, they were to maintain a distinctive identity while working for the common good, working for the welfare of the city. These are our marching orders as well, because Christians are exiles in whatever city that they live in. This is why Peter addresses his first letter to to those who are elect exiles. But even though we are exiles, we are to work for the good of the city, because that is what God calls us to. That means paying your taxes, voting your conscience, helping where you can. If you have the opportunity to work as a public servant in whatever capacity, do it well under the glory of God. God affirms that work. Again, we are to work for the common good. Now, does this, does this mean that we never say or do anything against the governing, governing authorities? Absolutely not. If we're called by the government to do something that goes against a command of God or is outright immoral, then we can and we should resist. With love and respect, there is a place for civil disobedience. And Christians have done this throughout church history. In fact, we see the disciples doing just that in Acts 4 and 5. There we read how the authorities arrested the disciples for preaching, summoned them before the Sanhedrin, and ordered them to stop teaching in the name of Jesus. And of course, after the disciples were released, they went right back to it, preaching in the name of Jesus, and they were arrested again. And in Acts 5, 28, the high priest scolds the disciples, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles respond to the governing authorities by saying, we must obey God rather than men. So there are times for resistance. There are times when accommodation is disastrous. For example, right now, there are leaders in the Russian Orthodox Church who are actively supporting Putin's evil actions in Ukraine, trying to provide theological justification for it. That sort of accommodation is disastrous. There are definitely times for us to say no to the governing authorities. But these times shouldn't be taken lightly. They should have gospel motives, not self-interested ones. Now, these circumstances aside, however, our job, our calling is to seek the peace, the welfare of the city. All right, so that's rendering to Caesar. So we owe Caesar our taxes, honor, obedience with some caveats. Uh, That's what we're called to you. But what do we owe God? Everything else. Oh no, everything. We owe God everything. Our currency bears the image of our rulers, but we bear the image of our God. 
The state gets the money that it's due, but God and God alone gets us. He gets our hope, our trust, our faith, and our ultimate allegiance. We are to work for the peace of the city, but we're to do so as dual citizens, recognizing Paul's words in Philippians 3.20, that our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Tragically, it seems that, that many Christians in our culture have forgotten this and have turned politics into an idol. One Christian author warns, One of the signs that an object is functioning as an idol is that fear becomes one of the chief characteristics of life. When we center our lives on the idol, we become dependent on it. If our counterfeit God is threatened in any way, our response is complete panic. We do not say, what a shame, how difficult, but rather, this is the end. There is no hope. He goes on to say, this may be a reason why so many people now respond to U.S. political trends in such an extreme way. When either party wins an election, a certain percentage of the losing side talks openly about leaving the country. They become agitated and fearful for the future. They put the kind of hope in their political leaders and policies that once was reserved for God and the work of the gospel. So I'd encourage you to think for a minute, does that describe you in some capacity? Are you putting too much stock in earthly kingdoms? forgetting that you belong to a kingdom that is not of this world. And why do we do this? Why are we tempted to turn politics into an idol? Well, I think many reasons. But I think one of the main reasons we turn politics into an idol is because, like many idols, it offers the illusion of control. If I can get my policy enacted, if I can get my party in power, if I can get my person elected then everything will be in order. Then I'll be okay. I was listening to a podcast recently on the topic of stress, and they interviewed a a neuroscientist from Stanford uh, who who talked about some studies that he had been a part of uh, looking at stress, and and these studies uh, were were trying to, to find out the effectiveness of various coping mechanisms, and they involved rats. Uh, So they got a bunch of rats and stressed them out. it's unfortunate. So the, the ways that they, that they would get these rats stressed out is by giving them electric shocks. And so uh, they do this and they would train them in these various coping mechanisms to see whether or not um, they would be relieved of their stress. And one thing that they found that worked quite effectively was the illusion of control. So what they would do is they would give a rat a shock, poor rat, and uh, they, would, they trained him when he was, or her, I don't, I don't know, um, <laughs> They trained, they trained the rat. Uh, when um, that rat received a shock, they could then press down on a lever. And the rat came to believe that, I mean, as far as we know, uh, came to believe that, that the lever would decrease the severity and, um, and the length of, of the shock. Well, the lever itself was attached to nothing. That the lever didn't do anything. But the rat believed that it did. And so as the, as the rat would receive the shock, it would go and it would press the lever and it would feel better and the stress would decrease. The illusion of control is something that, uh, that, was, was, uh, that this rat was clinging to in order to feel better about, about their circumstances. But notice, it's not actual control. It's just the illusion of it. 
So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to give you some perhaps unwelcome news. Friends, you're not in control. You're not. I'm not either. No matter who is in office, no matter who appears to have power, you're not in control and, and ultimately neither are they. But the good news is that that's okay because our citizenship is in heaven. We're not in control, but Jesus is. As Paul declares in Colossians 1, 16 to 17, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You do not hold all things together. Your party does not hold all things together. Jesus does. He is the only ruler worthy of our hope. And he's the only ruler who, we, who, as we saw last week, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, the one who has all power and authority, doesn't lord it over us. Instead, he is willing to set it aside, coming down to suffer and die on our behalf so that he could lift us up. We can't say that about another ruler on this planet. There is no one worthy of our trust in the way that he is. So let's not cling to levers, false senses of control. Instead, let's cling to Jesus, the only one who can and the one who will set all things right. Let's pray. My Father, this morning, we pray that you would help us to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. And Lord, we pray that we would know the difference. Lord, we ask that you would enable us to be good citizens, to love and care for our neighbors, to support your causes here on earth. Uh, God, by your Spirit, we pray for wisdom. Direct our consciences. Help us to use whatever power we, we do have for your good. But Lord, help us to, to know what belongs to you and to not let Caesar have any part of that. Father, you alone are worthy of our trust, our hope, our faith, our ultimate allegiance. Lord, help us to trust in Jesus, the one in whom and through whom all things were created, the one who is actually in control, the one who is ruling and reigning at your right hand. Lord, help us to look to him to find our hope, our peace, our comfort, our confidence in him and his work. Lord, we love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.